Welcome to Drop Everything podcast number 100. Thanks to all our listeners reaching this milestone together. I'm your host, Dan Holzman, usually. But on this episode, since I'm the guest, we have a very special guest host from the Passing Zone, John Wee. Before we get to the podcast, though, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. I hope to see all of you next year in Cedar Rapids for the big yearly festival. Also, please go to Amazon.com and buy my latest book, Budsuckers, The Story of Stoner Vampires. And check out my other books, including Alex the Great. All right, now drop everything. Get ready for special edition, drop everything, number 100. Welcome to the Drop Everything podcast, number 100. I am your guest host, John Wee, and today's special guest is Dan Holzman. How are you doing, Dan? I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show, John. Well, that's... What, what an honor. I'm a, I'm a big fan. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I know. You've probably heard all of these before, haven't you? Not all of them. Some of them I, I didn't listen to. But... <laughs> all right. And there were, a couple, there were a couple that didn't air. We'll have to keep those for the archives. Well, this is exciting. It's an honor for me to be on the hosting end of Drop Everything. I've been listening to this for years, and you've brought a lot of amazing uh, joy and great information to jugglers everywhere. And uh, it seems like the only juggler that you haven't talked to yet is yourself. So I think we're ready to go right now and uh, talk to Dan Holzman, find out a little bit more behind the curtain. I hear he's fascinating. So go ahead. He always seems to be every time I talk with him. Good, good. So really, I mean, this podcast has been an amazing thing. I don't know if you want to start by just telling us how this experience has been for you hosting a podcast for all these years and now what it feels like to be on the receiving end of the questions. Well, first off, I want to thank uh, Scott Seltzer for getting me started in this. I really got to know him when they brought me out to be the special guest at the Israeli Juggling Festival, and I stayed at his house. And he's the editor of the E-Juggle magazine. And he asked me if I wanted to write some articles, but I think that David Kane is doing such a great job and I'm not sure what I would add, even though I did an article recently about sort of the psychology of uh, juggling and the psychology of achievement. I thought it'd be much more interesting for me to do a podcast and frankly, less work. So, because <laughs> I, I do like to talk and I thought, well, that fits my, my personality better. And he said, sure. And at first we did two a month, but that was a bit much. And we had like a YouTube channel that went with it. And we still into one a month. And since then, it's been super fun. And I've been able to talk to some of my heroes, some of my favorite jugglers. Uh, obviously, Chris Cremo for me was a big thrill. Yeah. Paul Ponce. So many great jugglers. Albert Lucas. It's been a real, real pleasure to do this podcast. Yeah, it's it's been just about everyone, and uh, this is the 100th episode, so I think it seems fitting that uh, that you would be a guest. Let's just start off a little bit here with finding out a little of your history, and I'm curious about when you learned to juggle, how you learned to juggle. When, when did it all start for Dan Holzman? I do have to say, though, before we start, I did ask Anthony Gatto to be guest number 100. Uh-huh. So don't, don't think I was my own first choice. I think I was like my fifth choice, but... Uh, All right, so you're kind of the backup. Uh, I was always the backup, and I always had you as my guest host, because I thought, uh, out of all the jugglers I know, and I, I do believe that the Passing Zone are the most successful comedy juggling team in history. So this is uh, uh, very nice for you to do this. I do appreciate it. Well, that is extremely kind of you to say, and we've had a 
a long career, but we've spent a lot of that uh, a lot of that career chasing you guys. So uh, a lot in our shadow. You, That's right. <laughs> you were a big inspiration to us in our uh, early years, and I know for a long time we were competing for some of the same jobs back and forth. And that's always been interesting, but it's been fun to be on one hand competitors with one another, but also friends at the same time. So uh, it's, uh, it's been a, a pleasure watching you guys in your career. You're, you're one of the reasons we're doing what we're doing. Well, let me tell you how the whole thing got started, John. Please do. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, when I was a kid at like 12 or 13, I really loved show business. In fact, I had taken drama class and I'd even been in a movie when I was a kid called It's Alive. I remember that movie. It was 1974, right? Yes, it turned into kind of a cult classic. It was directed by this fellow named Larry Cohen, who passed away, I think, last year. And he was a very well-known like B-movie director. And so I was involved in children's theater and showbiz and magic. Okay, wait. Before before we get away from It's Alive. Okay, okay. <laughs> I I watched that movie years ago after I learned that you were in it. I had uh -huh. seen it before when I was really young. So I watched it again, and it is hilarious. I That's recommend hilarious. any any jugglers out there. The movie is actually sort of good in that bad, kitschy sort horror of. way. But the highlight for me was watching a young, I don't know, 10-year-old Daniel Holzman. Uh -huh. And you look at this kid and you go, oh, my gosh, that is Dan. And it's, <laughs> it's yeah, the plot is that this woman has some kind of uh, because of pollution and nuclear fallout, not nuclear fallout, just basically pollution and the, the way the world is going. She has a baby. But when the baby comes out, it has fangs and claws. Uh huh. It's hideous. So she has a murderous baby. Yep. And it kills everyone in the office. It kills everybody, the doctors, the nurses and escapes. And I am the monster's yeah. brother. I'm the monster's older brother. Yeah, yep. And you, uh, and you, you actually have a fairly major part. It's not just a little cameo. You were in in the movie a bunch, and it's just great. I, the tagline from the uh, from the trailer was, "There's only one thing wrong with the Ryan. <laughs> it's, it's a lie." <laughs> it was fun. I have I have good memories. It was like a seven day thing. I remember when I got the job, and there were some very interesting experiences. Um, that like I was supposed to cry in the movie and I was having trouble and the co the actress gave me a good slap in the face, which I don't know <laughs> would play nowadays. I don't think that works today anymore. And then, uh, <laughs> the, it, yeah, there was, there was some adventure. There was some fun to, to be on a, a movie set that young and to kind of experience it. Cause I always uh, love show business. I love movies and just, and that's what kind of led me to juggling in that I got involved with magic first but magic was disappointing to me because you had to show people. Like I had this trick where I made a cigarette disappear and you show one person, you're like, okay, I need to find someone else to show them. And I didn't know that many people. So yeah. The, so it, it got quickly got dull. And then I have to give a big shout out to Bobby Sandler because Bobby Sandler was the first thing I remember seeing on television. Maybe even the first thing I ever saw really and noticed it was juggling because I'm like, oh, what about juggling in my mind? You know, I like magic, I like show business, but I never considered juggling as a thing. But at the same time, there was a book by Carlo called The Juggling Book by Carlo. Yeah. So it happened kind of in the same period of time. I'm not sure exactly which happened first, but I remember thinking, oh, juggling, and now here's this book. So I get the book from the bookstore, and we had some uh, orange trees. And I found out that the green oranges, they didn't split open very quickly, and you could use them as juggling balls. 
So realistically, for the first three or four years, my only props were green oranges. Wow. See, no. But you had you had props literally growing on trees. So. Yes, exactly. They were growing on trees. And uh, I became very quickly known as the juggler, even though I just had these three green oranges, because it very quickly sort of dominated my thinking and my activity. And it was within maybe a day or two. As soon as I learned to juggle, it just took off for me because it, it fits yeah. so perfectly with my going into the backyard. And I was a bit of a loner and... I wasn't exactly uh, having a lot of people to hang out with at that time. And I was searching for some way to sort of be in show business, even though I didn't realize that juggling would be my, my entree into it. Because the acting thing, I just didn't seem like I was going to have that much success. I wasn't growing up into a matinee idol. I didn't see myself becoming a, a movie star, right? So yeah. That kind of thing. But the juggling quickly became the focus of my identity and within three, but I didn't see another juggler for like three or four years. I saw Chris Cremo on uh, the Merv Griffin show. And that was very disturbing because Bobby Sandler <laughs> was more the juggler. I thought, oh, I'm as good as that guy. Okay. Because he did like three balls. He ate the apple. He had a wild head of curly hair and I had a wild head of curly hair. So I could see myself as Bobby Sandler. Yeah, I, I, could, uh, I could learn that. I can do that. But when I saw Chris Cremo, I'm like, oh my God, I cannot be Chris Cremo. Because I wanted to be that gentleman juggler. That was sort of my initial uh, interest was this sort of slick ball, hat and cane, three ball, uh, Bobby Mayes. Because I had seen videos. There was a juggler named John Luker. And he had the, the collection of the eight millimeter videos of Dick Franco yeah. and Francis Brunn. And, and we watched those over. And of course, Chris Cremo. We watched those over and over again. But when I saw Chris Cremo on the Merv Griffin show, I thought, oh, okay, well, there goes that dream. Because I never yeah. thought I'd be as slick as, as Chris Cremo. So yeah. it wasn't until the talking jugglers like uh, Michael Davis uh, came out. And then when I went and saw you know jugglers do comedy juggling, especially Dan Rosen and Edward Jackman, yeah, who were LA guys. And I'd go see them on Westwood. And it seemed a lot more accessible that direction because I was already very interested in comedy and acting than in the Chris Cremo direction. So that's kind yeah. of what I gravitated towards. Well, and I love the story of, and I think this is one thing that's so universal about all of us who juggle. And one of the reasons we like to get together at juggling festivals and things, because I think everybody, so many of us have your same passion. The moment we learn, you learn three balls and next thing you know, you're carrying three balls around everywhere you go, juggling every chance you can get. And everyone starts to know you as the juggler. And, and, yeah. and each of us has our own story in our own little world where we are each the juggler. That's one of the reasons I think our community is so strong is so many of us do sort of feel like the one loner or the one person who does something weird. And it's it's delightful to be with others and suddenly realize, oh, everyone else is also the juggler. This is great. Well, I think for most people, learning to juggle is enough. Like if they learn the three ball cascade, it's enough. They, they can yeah. juggle. And that's yeah. all they really want to get out of it. I didn't really think about it as a profession. I never thought about, I knew I wanted to be in something in show business, a writer or somehow involved. But of course, as I got more involved and started doing some little solo shows, I met this clown named Buffo. And he showed me like he could spin a plate with each finger. And at that time I had switched to these very cheap, like the balls Gatto uses. Uh, what are those called? The, uh, you know, the cheap rubber ones you'd get like at the department store. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just the really cheap ones you got for no money. Super light, super not appropriate for juggling. And he was the first one who showed me uh, lacrosse balls. Sure. 
And then I started getting some, you know, really bad small jobs. I remember the first few were very, uh, at first I was a mime actually, because there was no juggling school. So I went to mime school. Okay. With, uh, a, a mime named Richmond Shepherd. And that was like a summer program. And Greg Dean came in. Greg Dean and also um, uh, uh, Gino Jones, who later oh, became yeah. a president of the IGA. Yes. They both came in as guest juggling instructors. So I did have a little little bit of experience actually meeting jugglers, professional jugglers. And then they had an audition for a, a TV show and the Karamazov brothers came in to do the audition. So I started to see more jugglers around, you know, Edward Jackman, Dan Rosen. And I started to see where jugglers were getting work. And I started getting some small jobs myself, but they were all very low end. Let's put it that way. Yeah. When did the speaking and comedy part enter for you? Was that really after seeing Jackman and Rosen and, and uh, you know, who else at that point were you looking up to and trying to emulate? Well, a big, a big uh, change for me is I got a job at uh, Six Flags Magic Mountain. At that time, a lot of jugglers were working at Disneyland. That became the starting ground for, I think, you got Owen and Randy Pryor and uh, Dana Daniels. A lot of people were became Disney jugglers. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I, I got a job at Magic Mountain. I was the only guy there. But I was doing like eight sets a day, eight half hour sets a day, doing what they called line relief and you know, where you entertain people waiting for roller coasters. Yeah. I, I would do a little pre-show before the show they had outside the theater. Yeah. But that's when I started to understand this idea of talking. And, and the line relief was great because I could try the same joke or, or trick over and over and over again. And so that kind of experience, those early days of just figuring it out. And I used to go to Long Beach, to uh, San Pedro, and just find these little spots I could just sort of set up and do these small little shows over and over again. Yeah. At the same time, I went to the Renaissance Fair, and I had become friendly. This was like around 1980 when I first uh, became friendly with Barry Friedman. I had met him, him and Mike Boyer at a park in Sherman Oaks where I grew up. But I didn't really, really get to know him until 1980 when we ran each other at the Fargo convention, the IGA convention, which was my first. Okay, sure. And then I saw him and his partner, uh, Mike, they had an act called Up in the Air Juggling Club. Yeah, they actually uh, placed third in 81 in the competition, didn't they? Yeah, San Jose, I think, was their last year as a team until I broke them up. Well, actually, I didn't break them up, but I'll tell you that story, too. Yeah, so I meet Barry... And I go to see him and his partner. And, and it, you know, the Renaissance Fair was very interesting because I saw Greg Dean do the Obscene Juggler. And I yeah. saw their act. It was a lot more acting, a lot more talking, a lot more sort of dialogue. And the juggling was not as Chris Cremo-esque. And, and then Barry had an opportunity to go to uh, Chicago and do, and do a fair. And it was a very bad offer. There was no money. And to do a <laughs> Renaissance Fair. And at the time, his partner had already had a fiance and probably wasn't as in need of money as me and Barry were. Yeah. Because at that time, I was very, I'd worked as a hamburger. I was at a place called Raldo's flipping hamburgers. So I was not exactly killing it at that time, <laughs> so to speak. You were looking for something else. I was looking for something else. And me and Barry had hit it off. You know, we seemed to have a, a, good, a good camaraderie right off the bat. He said, do you, my partner doesn't want to go. Do you want to go drive across country to Chicago and work for free and pass the hat at the King Richards Fair in Wisconsin? 
And I said, sure. Because you know? <laughs> I had really nothing. There really, wasn't really a lot of things I had as options. And yeah. it seemed exciting. And it seemed like, hey, showbiz is calling. So that we did that. He taught me how to drive a stick shift. So I had never <laughs> driven a stick shift. I didn't get my license until I was 19. Okay. I only had a bike. I just couldn't afford a car. And so he taught me to drive a stick shift. And we drove across country. And while we were driving, we would stop and kind of put the act together. And I had gotten that book, uh, The 2,000 Years of Juggling, from Carl Heinz Ethan. Or is it 4,000 Years of Juggling? I think it's 4,000, right? Something like that. Yeah. Sure. Let's go with four. Let's go with four. That sounds good. It's probably 4,020, but let's not get exact, right? Uh, so um, it, we used to have an expression in the 80s that things were gnarly or they were raspy. Like, oh, man, that, that I think it came from surfers. Like, that wave is so gnarly. It's so raspy out there. Like, it's a, yeah. it was a good thing. And so when, when I came across this juggler named Eduardo Raspini, it struck me as funny. And we were going to do a Renaissance fair, so I thought we should have an Italian name. Sure. So I suggested we call ourselves the Raspini Brothers, simply for this one gig. It wasn't supposed to be like this big overall plan. Yeah, so you're kind of heading out to, to do a thing for a while. This wasn't mm -hmm. like, let's start a career together. No, I thought we were going to do one show, like one six-week show. Yeah. But that show led to two other shows. There's a whole Renaissance Fair circuit, as you know. Yep. Uh, Minnesota is one that we, you and I have actually worked together. Yeah. So what happened was we met uh, Cliff Spanger and Mary uh, Spanger, who were doing an act at the time called Full Moon Circus. They were wire uh, rope walkers. Yeah. And they told us about the festivals in Minnesota and then the festivals in, Ch in Texas. So we ended up doing both of those as well. And so we were gone for about 18 weeks. And I came home with some real money in my pocket. I don't know how many, but in the thousands, you know, at least it was probably the most money I had. But I thought at that point, it's over. Barry will go back to work with Mike and I'll go back to trying to make it as a solo. But then Barry, I think, had an experience with Mike where they went out to Mardi Gras. Barry was, had sort of experienced my work ethic, which is like, we always had an expression that if we're there and the money's there, let's leave together. <laughs> yep, that, that's kind of my philosophy as well, especially in those early years. Well, especially in the street, like we only work on the weekends, so there's only so much time to make money. Yeah. So we can have plenty of time to have fun on the on the days off, but when there's money to be made, let's go get it. Yeah. And at the fairs, we would do nine shows a day. Our record was uh, at the, uh, you ever do the Galveston Festival in, uh, it was the Dickens Fair in Galveston, Texas? No, I never did that one. Our record was 21 shows in two days. <laughs> so so we were pretty, we were good hard workers. And I guess, I think when he yeah. went to Mardi Gras, I think uh, his partner at that time was more interested in having fun and partying. And they had a big argument or something. I don't know the particulars, but it basically said, okay, I think it's better to work with Dan. And he decided that that's what he wanted to do. So I never felt that I was the cause of, of any kind of breakup or anything. Yeah, they were kind of on their way out anyway. Well, back in those days, too, I, I want to let you know and other people know, too, that, uh, you know, we I was doing the Minnesota Renaissance Festival at that time since 81 um, as the three of clubs, a mm -hmm. three person team. Yep. And, uh, you know, we had been there for a year or two or something before you guys showed up. And I remember, you know, we were just we were 15, 16 years old, starting out and trying to thinking we were going to be a big deal at the Renaissance Festival and be the next big juggling act. 
And then I remember the first day we got there in in one of those years, maybe it was 82 or something, and you and Barry show up and we recognized you guys from the juggling convention. I'm going, what are those guys doing here? <laughs> like, oh, crap. We uh, we thought we were going to be the comedy juggling duo. And now now here come these guys. And so we were, uh, that's when you and we started to become friends, but we were also a little dismayed when you showed up at first. So, uh, just, just wanted to let you know, we were, we, we felt very threatened when you were on our turf suddenly in Minnesota. And but, in Minnesota, I also saw the performer who probably had the most impact on me as a performer, who was uh, Mark Sieve from an act called Puke and Snot. Absolutely. And they, because they were more like actors and I always thought of myself more as an actor. Like, yep. you know, putting on a character. And so as you see in my performances, I'm very sort of different than I am in everyday life. Like the voice is different. The attitude is different. And I really saw those guys as, as actors playing street performers. And they were so good. And Mark was so charismatic and had such a great way with dialogue. And Oh, yeah. So they were definitely the act that inspired me the most. Not not yeah. a juggling act, but, but puke and snot, the, the comedy sword fighters. Yeah, they were heroes of ours as well, and uh, and Mark is still there. I just talked to him a couple of weeks ago and saw uh, saw the show with amazing, the... amazing. You saw the show? Yeah, yep. It's still still funny. They're still great, and you know, I I think one of the other intriguing things I'm sure for you as well is just there aren't many duos out there mm -hmm. uh, doing comedy, and so they were just kings of the Renaissance Festival circuit, and you know they're they're what all of us wanted to be. But, you know, whether it's you guys, whether it's them, um, even Cliff and Mary, all, all of these duo acts were always so intriguing to me. That's all I really cared about, even though there were some really great solo people I looked up to as well. Uh, you know, Fudd the Incredible <laughs> back in those days. That one year in Minnesota, I think there was, what, a dozen juggling acts or something? It was out, it was out of control. Yeah, there were way too many. Way uh, too many. Tui as well. Tui. Uh, like I say, FUD, Penn and Teller were there for a year or two, as I remember. We got to yeah. work with them in the, back yep. in those days. But at a certain point, like, so in that, that time, I would go to junior college. Like, it wasn't, so it wasn't a full-time thing yet at the Renaissance Fairs, because it was mostly just the summers. Okay. And so I would go to, I was going to school, uh, Valley College, not very seriously. Like, the first year I was serious. Were you studying any particular uh, discipline in school? Well, the first year I was serious, I took like French and chemistry, like like a, like a real guy wanted to go to college. But then I went to like, oh, I took badminton and another mime class and, and diving and piano. And I, I just had no desire to really go on to college at that time. Yeah. And also I started making money as a juggler. And so it was just more of a something to do when I wasn't doing this summer tour. But then our last year in Texas, it was a terrible summer because it rained a lot. And most Renaissance fairs are dirt and hay. And so it quickly became a muddy, disgusting place to work, really. Yeah. And you made no money because it was raining. And so we're like, look, if we want to continue on, because we had, I remember we were sitting at this hay bale at one time. We thought, look, let's try to make a go of this. Let's try to make this a full-time thing. But we have to start working indoors. And in our mind, that meant we have to start working re review shows. Because that was sort of the next step that we saw yeah. that jugglers, jugglers did. Yeah, because uh, we would go to Vegas all the time to see Nino Fradiani and Chris Cremo and Albert Lucas and Dick Franco and, you know, jugglers like that. And they were all basically review show jugglers. So we figured yeah. that was our next step. So we got uh, a manager agent. I used to get a, a, a periodical called the Drama Log. 
Also, there was the circus report. Yeah. Or the internet, there were these little magazines that told you about the jobs and the agents. And in the circus report, I kept seeing this name, Simone Finner. Simone <laughs> Finner. All right. right. You know yep. where I'm going with this. Uh, she had been the agent of like Barrett Felker and Dick Franco and Nito Fragnani. So we thought, wow, yep. she must be the real deal. Yeah. So we, we got a hold of her or somehow we got in touch with her. She had an audition for her in her garage. And the one piece of advice was, I, I would don't pick up your stuff off the floor, get a prop stand. Okay. And later on, she told people that she'd put our entire act together. <laughs> but that was the only advice I remember was don't pick up the stuff off the floor, which is good advice. It is good, good, solid yeah. advice. And and yeah, she knew Variety Acts in, in those days. And we had our own meeting with Simone Finner at one point, And she was like a character out of a movie, pretty much. Yes. But she knew a certain type of Variety Act. The first thing she did was put us in these jumpsuits. Yeah. It was One Piece, Circus, Nino Fradiani, Vegasy. Old school. Like you're working the ice capades one night and you're on stage the next night. It was very embarrassing. Is, is that where uh, Nizer got his uh, wardrobe ideas? Maybe from her also. Oh, he was way hipper. This is, we're talking like <laughs> almost a onesie jumper type of thing. Very, and we're not, we're not doing that kind of act. Yeah. We're doing like a comedy act wearing these bad review show circus style circus. outfits. Yeah. And yeah. so she got us a couple jobs. The first job she got us was at Lake Tahoe at a casino called Harvey's. And we were supposed to be there six months. And at the three-month mark, she calls us. She goes, boys, you're leaving tomorrow. We're like, what? She goes, they're sending the checks to the wrong people. They're sending it to the wrong place. And I have to... And she had some weird reasoning. And you have to replace Michael Cherick in Aruba. So next week, you're going to go to Aruba for three months. We're like, is that how this works? You just leave in the middle of the night and you don't tell anybody? You just disappear? Did you, get, they, you snuck away? Yeah, but we're like, that can't be right. And so we did, we did tell this uh, one manager, said, look, you have to have an act ready for us tomorrow because our manager has told us that we're leaving. And we got blackballed from uh, Tahoe for quite a few years yeah, because yeah. of that. Until we returned opening up for uh, Robin Williams across the street. All right. And that was sort of everything. You know, that was a few years later. And by then, nobody remembered Harvey's and uh, the show called Scandals. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we left, we left, we did a, and we were getting terrible money. We, we took a big pay cut. We were getting seven fifty a week and splitting it. Okay. Right. And then we went to Aruba. We got seven fifty a week, but meals in a hotel. So we were hitting the big time there. Okay. There you go. And Aruba, we actually uh, met uh, a, a guy named Alain Cabute, who was a, a juggler and an acrobat who had a long career. Uh, until he had this new act where he did a mechanical puppet. So he was a wonderful guy to get to know at that gig. You know, this this history way back. His his nephew was the foot juggler Jean-Claude, and his brother was the wire walker Rudy Boley or something. So this guy was showbiz, right? He was yeah. super fun. And uh, it was a really wonderful three months experience. Plenty of adventure, plenty of excitement, and it was very much a, a proving ground. Yeah, couple of young guys living in Aruba and uh, doing the big show on stage. Oh, I wouldn't call it a big show. The show was called Lido de Paris, right? What a ripoff. <laughs> and it was a very, it was a small showroom and we did, you know, one show a night and uh, but it was very, very um, fun and we were still wearing the bad jumpsuits. And we only had like the one jumpsuit it seemed like, I think. 
Well, and even the idea of, <laughs> of following Michael Chirik, you know you're on a good path if you're yeah. working the same rooms he's working. Yeah, it was a big deal for us. We didn't yeah. get to meet him at that time, but replacing Michael Chirik for us was like, oh, we're replacing Michael Chirik. Yeah. And so we get back from that gig and Simone Finner goes crazy. She literally got committed. I mean, that's that's not uh, slander. She she got And nobody, nobody, this is years ago and I yeah. don't think this is anything bad to say, but she had some sort of breakdown and had to be taken away she went into some agent's office, I think it was George Slaughter, and caused a disturbance and was taken away for treatment. I, I believe our meeting with her was after she had had that uh, breakdown. <laughs> we knew we were in trouble because she, she brings us to her apartment after the Aruba's over, and she says, boys, I have an announcement to make. And she steps up on this chair. And if you remember Simone Finner, she was very bird-like. Yeah. Very sort of thin, not a very... Uh, substantial woman let's put it that way and she's wearing this little house dress that was too short for her age with these sort of bony legs she, she gets up on this chair she goes boys i have an announcement i am george gershwin's daughter and i'll be opening my own show in vegas and you'll be my opening act oh my yeah and so but before that i'm gonna get you on cruises we're like all right that sounds good you wait you're gonna be on a cruise ship within a week or something and then she has this episode and we never hear from her again, really. And we figured that kind of they kind of voided the contract. Yeah, that we had with so. her that she, yeah. And so at that time, we started doing some cruise ships. I think it was for Arlene Hunt. Maybe you remember those days, Admiral Cruise Lines out of oh, LA. Yeah. yeah. It was kind of sort of a lower end cruise line as well. And we started doing cruises. And so that was kind of our career up to that point. But we had a lot of experience, and we really had developed our act to a pretty good point by then through the Renaissance fairs, the review shows, and the cruises. And then we had a gig in, in L.A. at the Variety Theater, which was run by Milt Larson, or maybe his brother, Bill Larson. Yeah. Who were the same owners as the Magic Castle. Yeah. And they were doing, they, first they have a show called It's Magic, which we did, which is their yearly touring show, where they usually have a juggler act as the variety in the show. Yep. But they wanted to do a show of street performers called Hats Off. And we were going to be the headline act of this show called Hats Off. And so they had that in the big theater at the Variety Arts. And there was a lot of great acts in there. It was Johnny Fox and Matt Plendel and mm -hmm. Bobby Hunt and Alonzo. It was really a good show. Yeah. And Harry, Harry Anderson came in for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, they had uh, top variety acts of that time for sure. Oh, yeah. It was, it was really a, a good show. But they wanted some acts to go on The Tonight Show to promote it. And we had invited a, a manager to come out and see us. And his name was Joe Gunches. And he became our manager for, I, I forget exactly how many years, maybe 10 years or something. It was quite a, a substantial portion of our career. Yeah, I remember that. And he came out and saw us there. And he gave us the old, I know a Jim McCauley at The Tonight Show. And I can come, have him come out and see you guys. So I think you guys have something special. And I think I can get you guys on The Tonight Show. We're like, okay, that sounds great. And you know, at the time, I really was not a guy who watched The Tonight Show a lot. So to me, it was not that big of a thing, really. I was more yeah. of a Circus of the Stars guy. Okay. Like, I really wanted to get on Circus of the Stars. Because I, I didn't stay up that late, so I very rarely watched Johnny Carson. <laughs> so in your mind, Circus of the Stars was above The Tonight Show. I, to me, but, uh, <laughs> but I had known that Air Jazz and, and Michael David, there were acts that were on The Tonight Show. Sure. And that it was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And that it would probably really be great for our career. Of course. And so the next day, we do the show. I think this is still It's Magic, I think. Yeah. Because they're, they're, they're going to get ready for this other show, and they want something to promote it. 
So I think a lot of things happened at the same time that worked in our favor. Like they wanted to act to promote the show. Uh, Milt Larson, I think, was friendly with Freddie DeCorbina, who was the producer. I think there was some buzz about us, too, because Mac and Jamie, who are a comedy act, yeah. had said they had told Jim McCauley about us. So there was some buzz about us, I think, as well. But Joe Gunches was really the guy that got Jim out to see us. And then we did the show, and there was no Jim McCauley, right? We looked out, there's no Jim McCauley. Like, all right, let's just do our show. All right. But what happened was he was there, but Joe didn't want to tell us. So he thought it might throw us off our game. Oh, well, that's smart. Yeah. So we do the act, and sure enough, Jim McCauley liked it. And that's so that's sort of how we got this night show. And that's wow. sort of started the, the next level of our career. Which, again, mirrors another, I mean, one of the reasons I'm sitting here smiling during so much of this, too, is you guys and we have had such a mirrored career. You're probably one of the only people in the world who we have an understanding of (laughs) of each other because we've had so many similar experiences. We even had Jim McCauley in the audience to see us when we got on The Tonight Show, but we also didn't know that he was actually in the audience because he was late. And so, <laughs> or we yeah. weren't thinking about it and we forgot that he was coming and then uh, turned out he was there and we got on the Tonight Show. So it's it's great that you have even the same story about being told that he wasn't there. And he was good at his job. The reason he was Jim McCauley, he, he was good at the job because we went in for a, a meeting and we had decided what we wanted to do. And, he's, and we wanted to basically go right to Carson, like come out, Mr. Carson, come and help us. He goes, no, 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 guys. You got to establish yourself first. Goes, yeah. What about that apple and carrot thing you guys did? Do that first, then bring out Johnny, and then do the the rest. Yeah. And so, and so that was a really great decision. And so that first appearance, he was very hands on too. He had a lot yeah. of opinions about how it was supposed to go. I know we went back several times to sort of rerun the set with him until he finally gave it the thumbs up and said, "Yeah, that's going to work." Yeah, he was he was very important. That guy. He yeah. wasn't just a guy that just said, "Okay, you go." He was very involved with the acts who, who did that show at that time, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So we do the show, and like I said, I wasn't that nervous. Like, if you watch me come out, I'm, I'm really, my heartbeat is not rapid. It was really weird. I just felt a very serene kind of feeling. And we were very lucky also that it was spring break, and the crowd was really hot. And we were the first act up, which was very surprising, which I'm not sure how we worked that out. Yeah. And we did like eight minutes which is unheard of nowadays, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, can't, I can barely stand to watch our early Tonight Show because of how long it is. And <laughs> I, I bet yours feels the same. Yeah, it's, it's too long. <laughs> it's a little bit too long. But during that show, I guess Billy Crystal was watching. And he was about to go to Atlantic City to do a, a run, start a, a tour. And he wanted an act that was funny but it wasn't a stand-up. He didn't want anybody to do jokes about things he might do jokes about. Mm-hmm. And so he got a kick out of us, I guess. And he talked to his uh, manager, whose name was David Steinberg, I think. Yeah. Pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also, uh, there's other people involved, because uh, I think they were William Morris or something. And so there was, I think, Ed Mycone. There's a whole bunch of people whose names I'm probably getting mixed up. But sure enough, they, so the first gig we get, uh, going from the Renaissance Fairs, you know, it's these terrible review shows, these smaller smaller uh, shows, not making much money, was $10,000 for the week to open for Billy Crystal at the Sands Hotel in Atlantic City. Wow. With full R&B, which is, as you know, room, food, and beverage. 
Yeah. So they put us up on the high roller floor with this wonderful little place you could go and get drinks and food 24 hours a day. We could sign at any restaurant. And we're getting 10000 for the week. And we're like, holy moly. Uh, unreal. From <laughs> uh, 10000 That's a nice jump. Oh, that's a big jump. I mean, for us, that was uh, amazing. As well as now you've got amazing audiences every night that are just excited to be there. And I'm sure full crowds to to see him. And that's. Oh, that's... yeah. And Billy Crystal, even though it was the first show, like first performer we did, like the first celebrity, I still think he had the best headline set of any comedian we worked with. Yeah. Because it was tight. It was good. Because he had audience participation. He had bits where he played like a, a silent movie. He had this whole thing was like a, a jungle scene. It was a very complete uh, package. He did this thing where he tap danced while he, he ate like a, a cough lozenge and made the noises with his mouth. <laughs> as if he was tap dancing. Uh-huh. So it was a wonderful headline set. And he was a good guy. He was a good family guy. I could tell he was very happy being Billy Crystal. Right? There was definitely an aloofness, uh, a kind of a superiority. But yeah. he was a good family guy and a good sort of start for our experience working with celebrities. Yeah, because you worked with a, a bunch of them over the years, didn't you? Oh, my God. Because also his uh, management also managed Robin Williams. Okay. And he recommended us to Robin Williams, or the management did. And so that was our next big, I'm not sure the order of all the celebrities we did, but that was certainly very memorable because the, we, so because then we jumped up to like 4,000 seaters, 6,000 seaters, because the showrooms in Atlantic City are maybe 800, 1,000, something like that at the yeah. most. And then we jump up to these college dates he was doing, Robin Williams. And they were, like I say, 6,000 seats or something in these yeah. auditoriums. Yeah. And they come to us before our first show and they say, look, we, we've had Bobby McFerrin. That was his usual opener. And sometimes he'd be chanted off. This was before Don't Worry, Be Happy. He was sort of just a guy uh -huh. with no celebrity of his own. And they'd, he'd go in, they'd go, Robin, Robin. And he'd have to leave the stage because the audience <laughs> would start chanting. I know that's the hard thing about opening act stuff is it can be a great experience, but it can also be terrible because everyone's there to see somebody else and they want, they want you to get out of the way so they can see that. <laughs> yeah. So they took us aside and said, look, we want you to do 30 minutes because that way we can take a break, sell merchandise, you know, do drinks or whatever. It makes a lot more money if you guys can do 30 minutes, but give us what you can give us. If you can give us five minutes, give us five minutes. If it's 10 minutes, give us 10 minutes. If they start chanting, just do what you can, but don't think, you know, get off, basically, they're telling us. All right. Uh, and actually, Robin Williams actually introduced us every time we worked for him, which was totally cool. Wow, that's great. Which couldn't hurt, because he cause you could hear his voice over the loudspeaker, like, and he would do some funny voice, like, oh, I have some Russian friends who are coming to juggle for you, and, you know, some crazy introduction, and that certainly didn't hurt. Yeah. Right? He was a good dude. He, he'd watch from backstage, and you could hear him laughing, and... So he was very supportive of our act, and we always appreciated that. So the first night, we go out and we kind of kill. Because all those years of experience, right? Those, those renaissance fairs where you have to, you want to make money, you have to hold them. Yeah. And this, of course, was great experience for the corporates coming yeah. up. Yeah. But that was the big part of our career for probably, that was maybe 75% of our gigs. for the, Not Robin, but just opening for celebrities. Yeah. For, I think, seven, eight years, we did... One memorable one was uh, Howie Mandel, because that was because we got to travel around Canada in a Learjet with him. 
Oh, that would be great. Where you do the show, then after the show, you go to the airport, you get in the Learjet, you fly to the next city, get the hotel, wake up in the next city. Yeah. It's a and, funny story how we got the gig, too. And how he's a good guy, too. So How he's a good guy. How he's a very good guy. Must have been fun, fun hanging out with him. Yeah. He's a really sweet, warm guy. I mean, yep. it's, uh, what you see on TV is basically Howie Mandel. We didn't really notice the whole germ thing. That didn't really... I was wondering that because it's so prevalent now, but I didn't remember that early in his career either. So I bet it's something that that got worse over the years. Or maybe he just kept it more hidden, like he just yeah. kept it to himself more. Maybe. I don't remember it being an issue. But the reason we got the gig was his normal opening act was John Panette, who I don't know if you remember John Panette. He was a very yeah. large comic. Big, big fella. Probably close to 400, maybe 350 at least. Uh-huh. Over three. Hilarious. Oh, very funny. Super funny. He had a bit about an all-you-can-eat buffet that was classic. Yeah. You go now, right? <laughs> uh, very funny guy. But he was so heavy, he would have disturbed the balance of the Learjet. Like, if he was on one side of the jet, it would have, it would have made it difficult for the Learjet to fly. <laughs> so, so me and Barry weighed the same. At, they replaced him with two guys. Exactly. With less of a weight issue. Well, with the same weight, but at least we could sit on other opposite sides of the plane. Yeah, you could split up. So you got two for one. You got two Raspinis for one John Panette. <laughs> That's great. So that, was a, that was a fun job. And so that was memorable. But one memorable gig that we did during the Renaissance Fairs that was super cool, which I always one of my favorite stories, is we're doing the Renaissance Fairs. I think this may be the second year that we're at the fairs. And this is the L.A. Fair. Um, and a woman comes up to us, and she's very drunk. And she goes, oh, you must come to Europe to perform for my father. He would love you. We're like, sure, that sounds great, drunk lady. And she goes, I'll have yeah. my private secretary call you tomorrow to arrange it. We're great, drunk lady, has a private secretary. You yeah. know? This, this will be great. Thanks for coming. This will be great. We thought we'd never hear from her. We'd give yeah. her our number. Yeah, exactly. She calls, and it turns out her name was Nabilia Khashoggi. And she was the daughter of Adnan Khashoggi, who at the time was one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest man in the world. Uh -huh. This was before Google, unfortunately, because we, I think we asked for $1,500, right? <laughs> because we didn't want to blow our chance to go to Europe. Yeah, yeah. Free trip to Europe. You don't want to overprice that. And then the secretary goes, well, it'll be Greece, Spain, Africa. Oh, yes. Yeah, is our Marbella, Spain, uh, Greece, or Africa? And we're like, holy moly. And it turned out to be Marbella, Spain, which is the Gold Coast of Spain. And they flew us out there and they put us up at the same hotel where Sean Connery was staying. You know, 007. <laughs> at the Hotel del Golf. It was amazing. So here we, once again, here were these, these guys who were just a forklift operator and a, and a grill cook a, a few years earlier. Yeah. And, and, and working on the hay bales at the Renaissance Festival. Exactly. And then we got a chance to go. Uh, we missed the big party. We missed the big party because of delays. And they ended up putting us up in the hotel for four or five days, just waiting for an opportunity for us to perform. And finally, we ended up doing the show at like two in the morning on their private little disco inside their house for maybe eight or nine people. <laughs> but it goes well, you know, they yeah. liked, and we're wearing our Renaissance costumes, if you can believe that. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yeah. And they were so sorry for us. They, they doubled it to $3,000. So I think they felt sorry for us. Like, uh, like how about 1500 each? They kept you there a little extra long, too. So maybe that uh, justified it. I think they were also like, hey, 
you did not ask for enough. You know, let's give you fifteen hundred each, and they liked what we did. And then we used that. They said we can't tell people we hired a fifteen hundred dollar act. It exactly. has to at least be a three thousand dollar act, right? But how much could we have asked? Right, fifteen thousand, twenty thousand. Yeah, they wouldn't have said no, probably. But live yeah. and learn. But then we used that money to travel around. Uh, met Carl Heinz Ethan. Got to go meet uh, Felix Adonis, who's one of my heroes because I love the gentleman jugglers. Yeah. So we did. We used that money to travel around for. A few, we went to the. Uh, no, it was a different time we went to the European Convention in Brussels. And this time we just traveled around on that money and just had a great time for a couple of weeks. But that was definitely one of our classic Raspini stories is that we got to perform with the world's richest man at that time, Edna Khashoggi. Yeah, that, that's amazing. I remember you telling us about that when it happened. Yeah, the money part was the only downside. But <laughs> the, I remember this, they took us to this dinner that I'll never forget because obviously they had like escorts, like these women who were just like... It was, it was, and the, and the, and the McGuire sisters and celebrities. And it was just this deep, you know, the, the dinner with the, the, the forks and the, the plates. And it was the high life, man. It was, it was, it was crazy. <laughs> they had a dinner. Wait, let me get this straight. They had a dinner with forks and plates. Well, more, lots of forks and lots of plates. That's okay. 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 Multiple forks. Like the salad fork, you know? Now I, mean, I can picture it. And now they're yeah. bringing you fresh plates. Like, wow. Now I'm impressed. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've had forks and plates before, but never that many. I was starting to worry that you would really come from a lower place. <laughs> exactly. I had shoes. And then... <laughs> so but that was that was very exciting. And so I'm like, man, I'm in the right place. The showbiz is, is where I want to be. Yeah. This is getting glamorous. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it got really good. And then, of course, um, we had some crazy adventures. Like, there was a time where... O.J. Simpson was on trial for his first trial. Yeah. And I found out that they had sequestered the jury and that entertainers were going on the weekends to entertain the jurors. And I was so fascinated by the O.J. Simpson jury, the O.J. Simpson case. Yeah. I said, why why can't we do that? So we sent a letter to Judge Ito. And sure enough, like two weeks later, we're performing for the sequestered O.J. Simpson jury inside the courthouse. So that was from actually soliciting Judge Ito? Yes. They said, you want to perform at, in the courthouse, you send a letter to Judge Ito. That's how you do it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what was funny is they had uh, Mr. Blackwell. You know, the, he was uh, famous for having the 10 worst dress list. Oh, yes. He was a fashion designer, but that was his big thing. Yeah. Which celebrities are the worst dressed? If you made his worst dress list, it was a big deal. Yeah. For somebody, not for me. I think I would have made it every year. But uh, he said he had this interview. He said, oh, they loved me. They gave me a standing ovation. It was such a great thrill to, you know, to see the jurors. So I go, we got to do that. And the funny thing was, I talked to one of the jurors. They go, I go, I heard you like Mr. Blackwell. He goes, oh, my God, that guy? That was so boring. <laughs> and I realized, oh, because they're sequestered, you can say anything you want. Yeah, no, the word isn't going to get out. So. But what's funny was they gave us no instructions. They didn't say anything about, don't mention O.J., don't say anything about whether you think he's guilty or innocent. Nothing. Yeah, I would think that would be a big deal that where you'd have been grilled and uh, no vetting at all, no vetting at all. Wow! You just go because the, they bring them back to the courthouse on the weekends because that's where you would do the show. And we're we're back in the hallway. There's this paperwork, this official paperwork, and we're looking through it and just craziness. And we're like, man, if we could probably be the most famous jugglers in history, if we come out and we go, we got these machetes. Just like the one OJ used. There you go. Yeah. We also thought the same thing when we passed knives around Carson. 
who thought if yep. we hit him, we could become the most famous jugglers in history if we hit yep. him with a knife. We've right. had that exact same thought where, you know, it just you could you could have something go wrong and that could be the thing that gets everybody talking about you. And and maybe that's the springboard you need. But, yeah, it's risky. But we still got impressed because the people still thought it was funny that jugglers juggled knives and entertained the ocean. So we got some press out of it because yeah. we're always big on trying to uh, trying to tie ourselves into things that were in the news. Like we passed knives around John Wayne Bobbitt. Like when yeah. he was in the news, like this O.J. Simpson thing. So I always think that my person that juggling isn't that popular, surprisingly. I know maybe you, you found the same thing in the world. I've noticed. But if you tie it in with something else, then you can kind of sell it better. Obviously, yeah. you and I, we, we tie it in with comedy and with uh, you know, other types of things but besides just the juggling itself, just the cleverness of what we do or whatever. But we always were trying to look for opportunities to sort of do something that associates us with, with celebrities. Because Joe Gunch's his philosophy was get you on TV, get associated with celebrities, and try to keep moving up the ladder and then become sitcom stars or, or movie stars, or that kind of thing. Yeah. You guys did so much of that with different celebrities and opening acts and review shows and, and television and all of that. And then, you know, sort of, again, a little bit like we have done, you, uh, you definitely moved into the corporate market. Was that an intentional move? Did that happen sort of gradually or accidentally? Or was that a, a, a specific career move you made? It was a combination of things. First of all, the opening act market died. It really started getting very dismal. Yeah. And some of the experiences we had were becoming less positive. Like we worked for Roseanne Barr. That was kind of a, a not a very positive experience. Yeah. She's the only celebrity that made us change our act because that she was having bad response. She was getting heckled. And she said, oh, it's because the Raspinis break the fourth wall by bringing up volunteers. I want them to cut those volunteer bits. Uh, Even though we would go, then Tom Arnold would go, and then she would go. Yeah. So we're talking like 30, 40 minutes later that somehow our volunteers are causing her to get heckled. Right. And somehow the volunteer bits are the best bits anyway. So it's like she's asking you to cut the best parts of the show. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But even then, it was still too good because we got good reviews while she got bad reviews. One yeah. review said, our advice is get there early to see the opening act, and then drop your expectations as low as they'll go. See, she, she was not happy with that. Well, and it's great because that's that's of course what you're trying to do is is be that good. Yeah. And yet, yeah, if if you as the opening act outshine the headliner, uh, then you get fired. So you can basically lose your job by by doing it too well. There's one there's one funny story too about Tony Bennett, because Tony Bennett, his management only cared about the time. They said to us, they said, look, Tony Bennett leaves his dressing room at like fourteen fifty. Right. I mean, whatever the time is, like like 10, like 30 seconds before he's supposed to work. Yeah. Like you were supposed to end at 15 minutes. We want you to do 15 minutes. Uh huh. If you if, he, if, you're, if he's waiting backstage at like 1510, <laughs> you guys are fired. <laughs> right. 10 seconds too long. You walk off. He walks on at 15 minutes on the dot. You walk off. He walks on if you want to keep the job, basically. And they had, a, they had a, a, a clock built into the stage. Of course, other Vegas stages has as well. But there's yeah. a clock right there built in. And you're like, okay, 1430, 14. And when you're doing that juggling, right? And you're doing that last trick. You're like, okay, yeah. we can't, <laughs> you know, this is it. Right. Uh, and you've got your build up and you have to do the trick. You can't just stop uh, like you might yes. be able to in a story uh, as a comic or something. Yeah. 
So, but we never missed it. Uh, so we worked All with right. Tony Bennett. That was a big thrill. Dean Martin. Lots of like those old school stars, Paul Anka, and of course, a lot of comedians. But then the market really started to die. Our last offer, right? We started at 10000 for the week. I think our last offer was like 500 a show to open for Howie in uh, Lake Tahoe, something like yeah. that. So we're like, ah, okay. And at that time, we started seeing people making a lot of money in corporates. And we did a corporate show that was really super easy. Like we did something for a drug company at a, at a trade show or something. We made an astronomical amount of money. I forget how much, but really good money. Yeah. 16000 or just something good for the day or two we worked. And we thought, wow, there is a lot of money to be made in these corporates. Yeah. And we were getting a little dissatisfied with the management because we felt that there needed to be a lot of like legwork. There needed to be a lot of um, effort. Because at that time we sent out videos, right? You sent out 400 videos or something. Yeah. And they're all VHS. So... We didn't have a structure to do like the, the that kind of work. So we took that upon ourselves. So also that, you know, Joe wanted to do other things. He had started getting other acts. So we kind of broke apart that time and we started managing it ourselves. And basically Barry moved into that role. Okay. I, I moved to the role of doing more custom writing and Barry moved into the role more of the management and the, the negotiations. I never did any negotiations for the Raspini brothers. Barry did all the money. Barry did all the arrangements of the, which I loved because I, I've always been a very low opinion of myself, maybe in some ways. And I've always just been happy to get paid to juggle. Yeah. So I never would have asked for the kind of money that Barry asked for. All right. Well, so. good. That's the, <laughs> the right guy in the right role there. Huh? Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. so, uh, yeah. So we basically did this big mailing and we had this wonderful reel, of course, with uh, Johnny Carson saying, the R-A-S-P-Y-N-I, Raspini Brothers. And, yeah. and at the time, we, had the, we did the Presidential Command Performance Show for Ronald Reagan, which was a big deal for us. Yeah, oh, that, that was. I've always been jealous of that one, too, with, uh, with Reagan doubled over laughing at you guys. That's just solid gold for a video. The problem was, though, that they cut us out of the live sh the, sh the TV program. Like, we got oh, the footage. Did they? Oh, Yeah. Because, I mean, the, this is the story of that, which was one of my proudest moments for sure. Okay. okay. So we get hired to do this Presidential Command performance, which is big stars with some variety spots. Yeah. I remember Joseph Gabriel was one of the spots, the, the uh, magician. There was this really good tap dance duo and us. So there was three novelty spots and us. Uh, we, we were one of the novelty spots. And there was, I think, uh, Harry Hamlin from L.A. Law and James Seymour were the hosts. And they had like, Rosemary Clooney and the Boys of Bandstand. And one of the big stars was Latoya Jackson, right? Because okay. she had an anti-drug song out at the time. And so we go in there for rehearsal, and this rehearsal does not go well. It's not a great rehearsal for us. Okay. It didn't, whatever was happening, it, it just wasn't great. And there was a vibe going around from the producers of like, hey, do we really need the jugglers? And I uh, forget who went to bat for us. But obviously our manager went to bat for us, Joe, but someone else went for a bat for us as well, I think, in the production where they said, no, we've seen these guys, they'll pull this off. Yeah. Right. And so we do the show and we were definitely one of the highlights. Perfect performance, no drops. Yeah. Oh. And it definitely, when Barry caught that last club between it, because I didn't look at the president the whole time. I didn't want to freak myself out. And yeah. he's sitting front row. Yeah. Oh, that's terrifying. Terrifying. And sorry, bad rehearsal too. Like we were dropping and it was just, we were kind of wooden and it was not great. Yeah. 
to pull it off in that moment, perfect performance and huge laughs. We were obviously the funniest thing in the show. And afterwards, we were, we were walking around this reception. I forget where it was at. It was at the White House. Or, and you got to meet the president. And he said something very funny before the show. So we're in this whole line. You get to line up and then go meet the president and, and Nancy Reagan. And so we get there. And Barry goes, uh, we'll be juggling in the show, sir. And he turns to, to Nancy Reagan and goes, oh, mommy, they got jugglers in the show. Like really excited. <laughs> like I was like a kid. Ma he called her mommy. He goes, mommy, they got jugglers in the show. And it, was, it was kind of a, I remember that to this day, right? And it was genuine, not sarcastic. Oh, no, no, no. He was actually excited that there were jugglers in the show. <laughs> and at the end of the show to look down and see him. And he is at the edge of this seat and he's applauding and... It was, it was, yeah. Yeah. Right, for sure. And then he gets up on stage and does a speech. And I thought, boy, the back of his suit is so wrinkled. <laughs> so I also thought I could push him in the pit from here, but I did. Man. Well, yeah, the, those shows where you are almost the most nervous or there's a lot at stake or, you know, moments like that where rehearsal goes badly and people have question marks, and maybe you do too, about how it's going to go. Boy, are those satisfying when they go really well. And uh, this one sounds like the, the best example of that that you could even hope for. But we thought, okay, we're, we were golden because we had talked to Michael Davis and he told us how much money that basically that video had earned him, that yeah. presidential performance. We thought, oh, we're next, right? Yeah. This is going to shoot our fee up. We're going to be more in that Michael Davis range, you know, as opposed to the Respini range. Because they're definitely two different ranges. And that was, we were not in the Michael <laughs> Davis range. <laughs> But they told us, they said, look, because of the nature of your act, we found it difficult to edit. So we had to either use the whole thing or cut it out. And because it was like you or Latoya Jackson or you or whoever, we had to take out your whole act. Uh, but but we can let you, we can use the footage. Yeah. You'd see us in the, at the end of the show, you know, standing there waving. But it was never aired because we thought, man, we killed. Uh, but it never aired. So we didn't get that bump. Well, maybe we would have had that happened. And that's painful, and yet I find that most of the time having the good video is more useful in the long term anyway. You know, the number of people watching that night who might hire you or whatever mm -hmm. it is very different than the years and years and years of having that footage, and every buyer is going to see that. So you, you still got the best part of it, but it must have oh, been yeah. breaking to, to not get aired. It was a drag because I really thought that this would sort of, you know, at a certain point, we were at, we were at a certain point in your career. And you need things to kind of drive you, like for you guys, like America's Got Talent or something. You need sometimes these bigger venues, these, these bigger experiences to keep your act relevant and hopefully kind of make you more popular and raise yeah. your price. Yeah. And we had hit a point where it was getting kind of like, we were doing very well. Like we had a good dozen years or whatever where we were doing very well financially. Probably not as well as the passing zone, but, but good. Right? Okay. <laughs> okay, not passing zone level, but, 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 but darn good. Because I, I, do, I do think we're the second most successful after you guys. So that's where I right. place us. Well, we'll who's after us? I mean, there's we'll only so many juggling duos to begin with, right? So Yeah, I know. Yeah. It was us, I think. So yeah, we did got, very well. You guys were amazing. And, and Barry was very good. And of course, he's gone on now to have this whole career, giving the information he learned and the other stuff he's learned through his his he always was a guy educating himself like about the modern way of selling and this internet yeah. type of thing. But the corporate market took a big hit in 2001. Yeah. And took a big hit in 2008. That, that was a big one. I remember that one specifically. Yes. 
And so at that time, I think we started, we tried to hook up with a different agency, like a big agency, and that didn't work for us. And so I think at that time, that's when Barry started to think more about moving in a different direction. I always thought the Raspinis would be forever, meaning that there'd always be some version that we would do. Yeah. Even if it was only a few times a year. Yeah. I never thought it would just come to an end. Like, okay, we're not going to do it anymore. Yeah, because for a while, you guys were doing sort of less and less, or you were doing so much more solo stuff, and yet you were you guys were still definitely working a fair amount. Yeah. But at, at some point, Barry, was it Barry who just decided it was time to... Yeah. Time to stop yeah. doing it? I mean, obviously, I mean, I, I'd say there's probably reasons. I don't think I was a perfect partner or whatever. I mean, I was a darn good partner, but in any relationship... I don't think like, oh, he had no reason or just because things were changing. His life was changing. He had moved yeah. away to Grass Valley and he started seeing, getting success in this other field yeah. of online marketing and things like that. So for the last, I'd say, eight years of the Raspini Brothers, I did a lot of solo, which was great because I started doing what I called like adventure travel, where I wasn't as concerned with the money anymore. And so I took a lot of gigs that we wouldn't have taken as the Raspinis because the money wouldn't have been right. So I, but I love to travel when someone else is footing the bill. And I hate to travel as a tourist. So I love to go somewhere exciting where I have a job to do and I'm with other people. Like one of my favorite gigs was to go to China with the Clown Festival. Yeah. It was great because you're with this great group of people, like maybe 20, 30 people, and you're in China. How long were you there? I was there two weeks, two and a half weeks. Okay. We had two different gigs. One was in like a main part of China. The other way, we went to another city, which I always forget the name of, but it was like the food capital of China or one of the food capitals of China. And every night they made us these feasts that were insane. But the, the work wasn't great. I mean, they had us in an amusement park or they had us at these really weird spots. So the job itself wasn't great. None of these jobs really were that great. The jobs themselves. But you, you got to travel and go to some interesting... What, what, what was uh, so far? What's a big highlight of uh, Dan Holzman solo, uh, whether, whether in the U.S. Or, or abroad? I mean, I was happy I got to do this night show again as a solo, even though it was uh, meal or no meal. Like, it was one of those things where you're in the audience. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, they, you pretend you're not a performer. Yeah. Because sometimes I have an idea. Like, I'm thinking, okay, I've always thought, I thought if you had a Christmas-themed little stunt around the time of Christmas, it would be a no-brainer to get on this show. Yeah. So it was more of like testing a, an idea I had. I thought, and I wanted to do some trick that I thought I would never miss because I don't like to really feel nervous like when I do these things. Yeah. And any, any trick can go wrong, right? Especially on live television. Exactly. So I thought, I'll play the xylophone with a ping pong ball in my mouth. I'll play uh, Jingle Bells. And I think if I send them that, I'm a no-brainer to be chosen. And sure enough, they chose me. And I got on the show and I thought I pulled it off. I thought, well, that did a nice little spot, you know? Yeah. Because we were on four times total, uh, twice with Carson. And then once Leno had us on, just do this kind of uh, stunt to demonstrate the difference between regular TV and high definition TV. Oh, uh, yeah, I remember that. And I was probably my most nervous during that appearance because all we had to do was light up the torches, pass the torches around him, and then stop, right? Like, yeah. Because there's, I thought, well, any act could do this. And if we miss this, this <laughs> yeah. would be really lame. It's almost too easy. Exactly. Like if you're doing your act or whatever, and you can, you can cover it with dialogue, or you're doing seven back to back or something. Yeah, you're also doing something that isn't something you usually do. So Yes, I never do torches. We don't do torches very often. Yeah. 
So I thought, man, if these hang up, because sometimes like if you're doing three torches, you get to you do that start, and it sort of hangs up in your hands, and everything goes crazy, and you're like, oh my god, yeah. I hate to have some big stupid drop passing torches around Jay Leno, and we had opened for him a few times. That's why he knew about us, and and he was always friendly to us. So yeah, and that was a nice little appearance. So we ended up being on four times, or I was on uh, four times, and Barry was on three times. Yeah, and I think the most is five times. I think for maybe Dan Menendez is the record. Okay. For, for jugglers. So I'm up there in that conversation of a juggler who's been on The Tonight Show the most times. So that's exciting for me. We took a 30-year break. Uh, we're still on that break. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is after our second appearance, we had a third appearance planned. And we went in and met with Jim McCauley again. And he said, after our audition, I couldn't be, more, I couldn't be happier. I'll have you on within four to six weeks. But someone higher above said... No, we gave those guys a couple of shots. I think that's enough. And that huh. was it. Yeah, that was it for us. And the, but I felt good because we went in with something he liked. Yeah. And it wasn't like he said no. Someone else, maybe Freddie DeCorbin or someone else said, no, we gave those guys a couple of shots. I think. But some people thought that Carson didn't like us because um, of the knife throwing around him. And he made a joke like, I want to talk to the bookers who book that act. Oh yeah, so he's he's doing a sort of a comedic, you know, yeah. you you just put him in an uncomfortable spot and he's playing along, saying, "Oh, yeah, you know, I hated that" or whatever. But yeah, I, I'm sure he was just being Johnny Carson. Oh yeah. because oh, we met him afterwards and he was totally cool and and we, yeah. you know, we saw him as he went into his cool car. He was the coolest. I mean, come oh. on, that guy, that guy was the coolest. Unbelievable. Yeah, we were talking with him about a third spot too, but that was about the year he was retiring. And after a few conversations about what we might do, suddenly they said, there really aren't any spots left. <laughs> yeah. No, so that was the end of us. We did other TV shows, of course. We had some good ones. I thought Comic Strip Live, we had a good run on. Because I think yeah. we did six or seven of those. We did all those Carolines. And uh, I tried to get back on as a solo. That didn't really work out very good. I had an audition that I, was, I tried to do my golf act. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you've always been good at taking an idea like like golf or like a holiday theme or something and uh, sort of customizing and changing some juggling to fit a different thing. Like I said, I'm always trying to like, put it together with something else. Yeah. And that act was working, and I was starting to get some good work with it. But then we got an opportunity with me and Barry to do uh, our own show in Atlantic City, like a, a month run where the money was really pretty damn good. Yeah. And so I had a different ma uh, management at that time, and I had to go to her and say, here's this opportunity for a month or two, I will not be available because I'm going to go back to work with the Raspinis. And her name was Debbie Dean. Very nice woman. And she said, well, what's it going to be? The team or the, the solo career? And I thought, well, I got to take this gig. And it was just, so, we were already so established. And then that's when the corporates were starting to get good again. And so yeah. that kind of took away the Danny Mulligan thing. Even though that at the time, I think could have worked because I was starting to get like 1,500 a day and do golf events. Yeah. But the secret was, I never liked golf. So that made it kind of difficult because I didn't yeah, like golfers. I didn't like golf. Your heart's not quite in it, even though uh, the idea was quite good. Exactly. And they always wanted to play golf with me. And I always always had to make excuses like, well, I don't like to play golf before the show because you know, it hurts my, <laughs> <laughs> my back. So it wouldn't have been successful in the end, I think, unless I became a better golfer. And I just, so it was kind of good that it ended up not happening. But I love the travel. I loved cruising. This place called Through the Avenue of the Glaciers was exciting. I got yep. to go to Fiji and Tahiti and Bora Bora, and I hated them all. 
<laughs> I don't like the hot weather. I don't like the humidity. So all these island places were terrible. I like the Alaska cruise is nice. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, like Tonga, we got to go to Tonga, the jungling island. What yeah. a nasty place. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I don't need to spend any more time here. No, it was uh, the best thing about Tonga were the fruit bats. Like they had these trees filled with fruit bats and they called them the flying foxes. And to me, they look like little dachshunds, like flying dachshunds. Yeah. And besides juggling, I'm crazy about dachshunds. That was the big treat was yeah, when they look like these flying dachshunds. You have two dachshunds, don't you? I do now, yeah. Uh, yeah. They're named Francis and Lottie. Uh, how'd you get those names, I wonder? <laughs> I, I, you know, it's funny. I tried to name all my pets after famous jugglers. I have a cat named Monty after Ernest Montego. Turns <laughs> out she's female, but we still call her Monty. <laughs> and I have one more dog in my future. Because uh, I think after these, they're 17 now. And old dachshunds are a handful. I mean, yeah. they're not, they pee and push, you know, every, it's a mess, right? But I have one more dog in my future. Her name's going to be Trixie. It's going to be a long hair, cream colored dachshund. And her name's going to be Trixie. And are so. you going to teach Trixie how to do some tricks? That... No, no. Dachshunds are a whole different thing. They don't race. <laughs> they, they're, they they're, don't... they're just such loving dogs. And they're just, they bring so much joy to my, to my life. I love dachshunds, so. Well, and so, you know, before we're out of time here, I know we've yeah. been talking all about your amazing juggling career with Barry and Raspini Brothers. Also, the incredible career you've had since doing all of your solo stuff. Now, I've also seen you branch out into some other surprising areas that you've had some great success yeah, with. Yeah. Well, both, you know, as a toy inventor with the volcano ball and ring dama and let's see, am I missing some that? Uh... Well, the ring dama, the, the volcano ball was not a success. That was my first attempt. Okay. But the ring dama was actually very successful for me because it was a wooden toy, sort of based on the idea of a kandama. You wear like a ring on your finger. Yeah. And I went to Toy Fair in New York City and sold the rights for the LED version to a company called Zing Toys. And they invented, they, they came out with the Zing Dama, which is the LED version of the Ring Dama. Okay. And, and they got it in Walmart. Wow. And they made like a million dollar deal with Walmart. And I was, I, and I was getting 5%. Okay. Right. Of everything they sold. And I had invested foolishly like $25,000 in this project. And I just would have lost it all. But... But because I was able to sell it to, to Zing Toys, I ended up making a really nice profit. And they oh. say only 3% of toy inventors make any money. Yeah. So yeah. there's another thing where I had an idea. And like you said, I was able to bring it about all the way to a conclusion and make it real. And I was very proud of that. Well, another way that's hard to make money is uh, writing books. Yes. And, yes. and so that's what you're up to next. And yes, uh, I also want to say that one of my proudest things was this is nothing to do with juggling was I was a tutor in San Quentin prison uh, for three years. So that was probably one of my most intense experiences. I went to San Quentin prison uh, over a hundred times. Wow. Or maybe more because I'd go in like once a week. But a lot of times you couldn't get in because they'd be locked down or you go all the way out there and they say, I'm sorry, you can't come in because of this reasoning. And what, so, when you say you're, uh, you were a tutor, what were you teaching uh, reading or English or were you teaching? Math, math, and, uh, math? Uh, math and English. Okay. I, I thought I was going to be a literacy teacher, teaching just people how to read. Because mm -hmm. my dad had done that. And I thought, I love being a teacher, right? but I'm really lazy about getting any kind of certificates or anything like that. So I was able to go tutor in San Quentin with no, just a high school graduate, with a high school certificate. I was just a volunteer. Yeah. 
but that experience of going in there and meeting the prisoners, meeting the inmates, and just sort of experiencing that that life, uh, these people who had to be some of the best people I'd ever met. I mean, as far as just the way they treated me, the experience teaching them, they were so appreciative and they were such a great group. These were also guys who had earned the, earned the right to take these classes. We okay. didn't do any gangbangers. We didn't do any like really high risk offenders. Yeah. These are the people who had earned through good uh, behavior the right to take these classes. Okay. And so it was a very eye-opening experience for me to do that. Wow. And also because I wanted to be a teacher so much, I also was a driving teacher for a year. Okay. A dri- driving instructor? Like- yeah. Okay. I taught teenagers how to drive. I had the car with the brake and everything. A little harrowing, right? Uh- at first, it's a little. At the first week, I thought, I don't think I can handle this <laughs> because my nerves. Yeah, you, I found myself like holding the you know like my hands out front, like oh my god. Yeah, but but I quickly learned how to keep us safe and became nothing to drive with these kids. On the I take them on the freeway for the first time. I really enjoyed that experience of, of, of sort of being a mentor to these kids one on one, meeting all these teenagers and being able to kind of impact their lives. Not only by teaching them to drive well, because I thought I became a first class driving instructor. Like I took it seriously and I became a first class driving instructor. Nice. But also sort of telling about my life and about the path I was on. And it was a very good experience for me. And I guess the writing is something else I always wanted to do. But, you know, I find it, like you say, it's very difficult to make that a living or a profession. Sure. And most people do start writing more as a, a calling, something they want to try to do. And if it happens to take off, great. But, you know, yeah. most most people don't get into writing for the money. Same as getting into juggling, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but at least you can see juggling has a lot less competition. It's a lot more immediate. Like you do the job, you get the check. Like to get something published through a publishing house, it's yeah. like a two-year process. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, I just don't want to do that. So uh, after I have a new book that will be out. I should promote all my books. But my first book was a book of tips, which I compiled through asking my friends about you know, stuff about performing and different torches and cruise ships. So it's a thousand tips for performers. So I didn't really think of that as a book as more of a compilation. Yeah. And then I thought, well, I'll write an autobiography because that'll be something that'll be easier than writing a novel. So I wrote a book and I thought, well, the Raspini story, I don't think it could maintain a whole book. But I thought if I combine that with stories about my driving experiences, it kind of bounced back and forth chapter to chapter with a driving story and a Raspini story. That would be more entertaining and maybe have, and also my driving tea, the, the guy who owned the, the company, let me give out the books to the students. Okay. And would give me money, pay me a little money for every book. So wh- what was that book called? Driven to Succeed. Uh, okay. All right. I've always felt that I've been driven to succeed, that I have a, a drive to accomplish, a drive to achieve things that drives me to new projects. Yeah. yeah. So then I thought, okay, I did this autobiography one. Now I want to do a, a book set in the world I know. So I want to write a book about a juggler. And I set it at Pier 39 because also I had done, uh, I had gone back to street performing to sort of perfect my solo career, yeah, my solo act. So I went back to the pier and kind of started over and, you know, would pass the hat and sometimes make $40. And But luckily the money became secondary because I didn't need it. I mean, I got to the place where I had... Not fu money, but maybe at least uh, a smaller version of that. If people know that showbiz <laughs> term, I won't. I won't elaborate what that is. Yeah, I could pick and choose more. Just take a hike money. It's... Well, that I could kind of like. I didn't have to worry 
about the bills through the money I was making yeah. at the pier or something. I have investments and real estate or whatever. So I didn't have to worry about paying my bills out of this money in the hat. It could just go in a box at the house and just be money I could have that would be money around the house type of thing. Even though you can make good money and I made okay money, but never a big hat act. So the final book, this probably will be the final book because the goal with this one I realized is to get a book made into a movie. Well, and I want to just back up for a second because you didn't even mention the name of uh, Alex the Great. Yeah, it's called Alex the Great because I had this idea. Oh, you read it, didn't you? I read it and I really enjoyed it. And it was it was such a neat experience reading because I thought it feels like a book that was written, you know, for me or for us. <laughs> for it is. You know, uh, well, is. and I even recognized some people, you know, some characters were a little bit more disguised than others, but some of the characters, either by name or by description, I knew yeah. exactly who they were <laughs> as performers. And they know who they are, too. Like, I didn't do it secretly. Like I said, I'm mean, like Fred Anderson, Scotty Meltzer. Uh, yeah. Some of the other pair are more composites. Yeah. Like those are the two who are exactly, exactly who they are, basically. Yeah. And even Joe Gunches gets a shout out. Joe yeah. Gunches gets a shout out. I mean, I tried to, I tried to make it fun for everybody, right? So. Yeah. I think there's never really been a novel about like a juggler that I really think is a novel about a juggler and the juggling path and all that stuff. This is about a street performer and who, you know, a kid who discovers juggling and wants to become a juggler. So if yep. you're a juggler, which I hope you are by listening to Drop Everything, <laughs> this book's for you. Yeah, it's, it's great about the path to become a performer, about having a mentor or being a mentor. It's a good glimpse into the world of some of the real challenges and struggles but also the the wins and the stuff that makes it so fun so if uh any of you jugglers out there haven't read it yet uh read uh, alex the great as endorsed by john we of the passing zone there you go yeah so finally i had this idea a couple of years ago and i'm always trying to think of commercial ideas like i wrote a screenplay that didn't sell but i thought okay what's the commercial idea for a screenplay and that was about a twisted tattoo artist who kidnapped people to use their flesh as a canvas for his works of art and that was called Scratcher. <laughs> but I never saw, I couldn't, I didn't know how to sell it. And I, you know, I have no connections. Yeah. So I had an idea a couple of years ago. And I don't know how I came up with this idea or where it came from, but I love vampires. And I'm not like a, a guy that um, is going to push marijuana on people. But I had this idea where, what if these kids want to grow, because now it's legalized here in California. I thought, what if these kids want to grow marijuana to college students, but by accident, they grow the marijuana on the grave of a vampire? Would the, would the weed then give you the munchies, but not for junk food, but for blood? <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's a really commercial idea. You know, like you a go. stoner, like, like Cheech and Chong meets Dracula. That was kind of my, my philosophy. Okay. And I thought, wow, that's a really good idea that's the movie we've all wanted and it just hasn't happened yet exactly i mean i hope and i thought okay so i had to like then flesh it out and i thought finally i'm gonna write this book and it's so it's bud suckers so not blood suckers but buds bud yeah like, like okay. marijuana buds okay i just got the proof copy and i'm gonna go through it one more time and make my final little tweaks and then it'll be ready to order and it'll be delivered by by halloween so All right. It'll probably be out in the next week or two. Just around the corner. I really do feel I've tried to be helpful and try to... I mean, I was the first Bobby May Award winner for the juggler who helps other jugglers. 
Oh, yeah. And you I, I, I wanted to mention that, too. You have done so much for the juggling world, for the IJA. You've both through volunteer work and directing the Cascade of Stars and being the festival director uh, several years ago. And I'm just I'm always impressed and amazed and appreciative of how hard you work. Uh, not to mention this podcast. You said at the beginning that, you know, you did this because it's easier than writing, but it's not that easy. And you're putting in a lot of time and a lot of effort and people are really getting a great benefit from it. So I've always been really appreciative of everything you've done for juggling and for the IJA. So this has been an honor for me also to uh, be able to interview you and hear your stories too. Well, before I go there, I have to give a shout out to Karen Holzman, my wife. Because she she does the hard work, really. She does. She does all the editing and, and she does all the production. I just get to talk like this. So she really deserves a good shout out. But I really would appreciate if people would, would buy my books and leave reviews because, you know, maybe it's a way to get back to me a little bit. I did get the uh, service award. I've gotten four awards. I got the Award of Excellence, which you guys have gotten as well. The uh, Bobby May Award and the, uh, yeah, the, the service award. So I guess three awards, I think. Yeah, yeah, well, I think that's and, it. And there, so far, there are more to come. I'm sure. So far, oh yeah, the Flamingo Award for the best female juggler. But that's, all right, that's, it'll that'll take some time and commitment, but you'll get there. As yes, I hope to get there sometime in the future. Juggling has given me so much, and so I'm also one of those guys who is a juggler. Like I'm, I watch the videos, and I I'm into the whole community, and it's a big part of my life, and. I really do feel it's coming to an end, at least to me as a performer. I do have a gig November through December, which is kind of exciting because they wanted two sets to music, two four-minute sets to music. So I'm kind of coming back to, like, I'm going to be a gentleman juggler and do an act to music. And uh, Nice. How, how are those coming along creatively? Well, the second one's very exciting. The first one's going to be like a gentleman juggler piece of stuff I've done before. But the second piece is entirely new because I've become hooked on pickleball. Uh-huh which is this new tennis-like sport. It's not new. It's been around for maybe a dozen years or something, but it's really gaining in popularity. Getting big, yeah. Getting big. And I started playing, and I just love the equipment. I love the game. And so I thought, what about being a pickleball entertainer, like the way I was with Danny Mulligan, but now sort of get into pickleball. But as I kind of do more with the act, I realize I really don't want to go back on the road. I don't really want to get gigs like, oh, now we're going to fly to Florida to do a pickleball event and you go to Miami one of my least favorite places you gotta go you gotta go to where the pickleball is I don't want to do it so <laughs> uh, I don't think that's gonna really pan out unless it kind of just develops and falls in my lap a little bit because I don't turn things down like I don't if the universe says hey this is gonna work I will work it you know what you need to do you need to coach your pickleball skills to some young person who wants to go to Florida I have, a, I have, I do a mentorship as well. I do have mentor, I do a mentor thing. Uh, I have a ment, I have a guy now. I'm kind of a mentor as a protege. And of course, Niels Dunker was a guy I was considered a protege. Yeah, I know you've worked with him a lot. So if there are others out there who are looking for sort of like a mentor, I do coaching. I do uh, paid coaching as well. If you're looking for someone to like go over your act or you know like a one or two time thing, but I'm always open to jugglers who want me as a mentor who want to sort of pick my brain and kind of reach out. I'm working with a guy named Nick Pellini now. He's a nice guy in, in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I know him. He's a great guy. Great guy. Really nice guy. I try to get him involved in pickleball. But it's just like juggling, right? If you don't love the thing, 
don't do it. Yeah. And I like pickleball. It's great fun. For anyone listening out there, yeah, if you're looking for a mentor or advice or coaching of any kind in juggling and a career and especially comedy, uh, yeah, Dan's your guy. So, Yeah. Very open to it. Very approachable. Just send me an email or something and send me a video. I'm all, the only thing is I'm very honest because the trade-off is I get to say I don't like that or, or no, you're blowing it. I mean, that's the trade-off is I get to be a little blunter. Yeah. I know you can be honest, and, and uh, I also know that can be a little painful sometimes to be on the other end. <laughs> <laughs> I know I gave you guys a talking to one time, I remember. Yeah, maybe uh, more than once. Well, I remember one time I thought you guys were getting too much like us, but then you guys developed like this, this people juggling and the chainsaw ballet and your own direction. But we had, we had a couple of run-ins over the years about material and stuff like that. But I've always, I've always admired you guys. I've always thought you guys had a good, strong act. I like anybody who represents juggling well. Yeah. Like yeah. I've seen acts and I thought, this is what people think about juggling because of an act like you. I had one act. I went and saw this. I'm not going to mention their names because uh, it's not, not, not nice. But I went to this one fair and I saw this act, this duo act, right? And duo acts especially, I consider our oh. art form, right? Yeah, that's right up your alley there. I mean, that's, that's my thing. Like, like anything, anything I know, I know two-man juggling. And these guys were just so embarrassing to me from their equipment to their lack of respect for the safety of their audience. Like they almost hit this guy in the head with this trick they were trying. It was just, it was terrible. The clubs were like broken in half. Like one club looked like a, bro a broken in half wooden club. And they had the bad bean bags, right? Like the, the square bean bags. And yeah. these guys had been working for a few years. These guys weren't novices. Yeah. And, and, and people didn't mind. Like the audience watched them and gave them a dollar or whatever. They were happy. Oh, I saw a juggling act. But I'm like, that's what they think about juggling, what they just saw. Yeah. Well, so, did you did you lay some honesty on oh, those? Oh God. Yeah, I was I shouldn't it wasn't my place, right? I'm like <laughs> it, it basically came down to you guys sicken me and uh, not that I said that necessarily, but that was the vibe I put out. Like I don't know if you're doing the best job selling your coaching, but 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 I hope I hope people take you up on it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> well, the people who have worked with me, uh, I, I mean, like you said, I think there's a lot of people who can look at my involvement in their life and say, wow, he really was a positive influence on my career, on me as a person, because that's important to me yep. to be that guy. Yeah. Well, I've always really appreciated our friendship. I like the fact that we've uh, pushed each other along uh, sure. when we're competing with one another, but also that we've uh, remained friends all this year. And and again, that there's hardly anyone out there whose career mirrors mine and ours the way that uh, yours and Raspini's have. And so it's just been a, a delight sharing this crazy road with you. And I'm so glad you had me uh, on today. Well, or I guess I'm glad I had you on Drop Everything. And I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on as a guest, John. Thank you. And how's the sign-off go? It's something like, so everybody, that's Dan Holzman. And, uh, and remember, drop remember, everything. Drop everything except, except you're when you're juggling. Yeah, there we go. Thank you, John. Hey, thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 100 with special guest host John Wee. Thanks, John, for doing this episode and for all you do to promote juggling in a positive way around the world. Also, of course, thanks to the IJA for sponsoring this podcast all these years. The IJA, 
a great group of jugglers that can be found at juggle.org. And folks, if you like this podcast and you want to thank me, go to Amazon.com, buy my latest book, Bud Suckers, rate and review it. I'd really appreciate it. And, of course, go out into the world and drop everything except when you're juggling.